This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action. This is SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I'm here on Zoom today, like every day, with my friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall. How are you, Ann? I'm good, Jeff. Poor guy. You must be tired of me. (laughs) (laughs) I know I can be annoying and irritating. (laughs) I, I couldn't imagine a better person to spend the last 13 months on Zoom with. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I feel the same way. Very. Well, and it's good that we feel this way because, you know, our third host, Mike Yuseem, off today. Off. Yeah, I tell you, you know, like, Slacker. as long as we all recognize who's getting the work done around this <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, before we begin today, I want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern. Here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, channel 132. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. That's at SXM Business. So, Anne, yeah. here we are. Right. We're in the middle of April. Right. We have, uh, we have now spent almost an entire academic year. We're just a couple of weeks short, so short of an entire academic year delivered virtually or digitally or online, whatever right. the whatever the expression is. Mm-hmm. What um, as we as we kind of warm up and get ready for today's guest, mm-hmm. you know, let's say we propel you out five or ten years and you look back at this time. Mm-hmm. What what would your prediction be right now about mm-hmm one or two of the things that will stay with you from this year of virtual leadership? Well, I think one point, and I think our guests will have something to say about this as well. The pandemic certainly forced us, compelled us to pivot and to adapt quickly. (laughs) So things we thought were not possible. I, I, lead, as you know, an experiential course for undergrads. And if you had told me that I was going to do that experiential course virtually rather than in person, I would have said, no way. (laughs) But in fact, we led an experiential course virtually and it was surprisingly successful. (laughs) So the ability to adapt and pivot and, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I, I really learned that lesson. How about you, Jeff? What would you say? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the lesson for me, um, I was probably pretty skeptical going into this that you could uh, create or achieve any level of intimacy over uh, over this kind of a connection, and you know, Mm -hmm. clearly not talking about romantic intimacy, right? Right. um, But the kind of you know, the kinds of relationships, which I think are necessary to support learning. Um, and, and I've been really heartened uh, to understand that while it, you know, may take some different strategies, um, I do think it's possible to, to create 
the kinds of connections and the kinds of relationships necessary to support an individual in their learning. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, you know, Anne, I, I, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more over the course. Yeah, of I'm excited. Today's show. So, you know, as as we all know, as all our listeners listeners know, the coronavirus pandemic forced many of us online and forced us to learn how to use digital tools like Zoom, right? The platform that we are right now using to record this radio show. So our guest today says now is the time for companies to use technology to stay competitive because there'll be no going back. Um, Let us bring on Nigel Vaz. Nigel, how are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? And good to be with both of you. Thank you. Wonderful to have you, Nigel. So, Nigel, you are the you're the CEO of Publicis Sapient, which is a digital business transformation company focused on helping companies survive and thrive in a world that's increasingly digital. And you're also the author of a best-selling book called Digital Business Transformation: How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from Now to Next. Um, Nigel, let me let me just get us started here, and and then I'm going to step back in a, a minute or two and just tell guests a little bit more about you. Um, but tell us, if you will, when you became a, uh, a, a this may be a the word coming to mind is devotee of digital business and and digital business transformation. So I think, you know, um, Jeff, I think it's a, it's a great question, right? And, and like so many things, it starts in, in childhood. But when I go back to kind of my childhood, I had really limited fine motor skills and I had a real problem with something as basic as kind of holding a pencil and a pen. And I remember being an avid reader and fascinated like most kids are with comic books and, and you know, people like Captain America almost were augmented through technology. And, and for me, you know, I started to realize, hey, I've got this like gap, but this gap can be filled by a computer because I can type really fast and, and that can then allow me to start to connect and communicate. So I started very early on on a personal level, starting to relate to technology like a superpower. Mm-hmm. And so as I then, you know, moved through my career and, you know, started kind of in, in the world, uh, I was fortunate to be in business at a time when the internet was starting to become the dominant technology of our day. And you start to see, you know, this whole new generation of companies come on and it was exciting and it was great. And then you started to see these companies go bigger and stronger. And then you started to see these companies that we'd known for hundreds of years start to disappear first slowly and then faster and faster. And every time somebody said it couldn't happen to this company, Nokia, the biggest mobile phone provider in the world, boom, where are they gone? And there's many examples of that, right? I started to realize that that same orientation I had at a, at a personal level as a child was the superpower that many of these companies needed to master at a time when the world was becoming increasingly digital. And if they didn't navigate that you know, S-curve, they would effectively not be able to survive or, or thrive. And you know how boring would the world be if all we did was bought everything from Amazon and only ever talked to each other using Facebook's you know, suite of social media platforms? Because of course, the diversity of all of the companies that we know and love being competitive, being able to change and transform is, 
is so really valuable. And so I think those sort of the personal journey and then the professional journey have kind of dovetailed, I feel like, in this era that we're sort of in right now, where if you told me a couple of years ago that would that would be happening, I would say not so much. But the fact that we're all on Zoom in wherever we are in different parts of the world, you know, kind of puts a very fine point on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate that, Nigel. And <clears throat> while I would like to ask you a follow-up question, I promise to tell listeners a little bit more about you first. So I'm going to do that. Um, Nigel, you uh, you advise some of the world's largest businesses on transformation initiatives. Um, and, and your clients have included Goldman Sachs, Marriott, McDonald's, Nationwide, Nissan, Unilever. Uh, you've been named by Consulting Magazine as a top 25 global leader. And you are also a successful entrepreneur, um, co-founding a public company with interest in internet consulting and, and connectivity solutions. Um, you know, you're, you're involved, um, you're actually president of the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. You're a board director of the Marketing Society and you are an inductee. You, you could be the first inductee we've had on the show to the BIMA Digital Hall of Fame. So let's just take a quick detour if we can for a second, Nigel. <laughs> what is it like to be a Hall of Fame inductee in anything? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was, uh, it, it, you know, it, it was really funny when I, when I, when I was told that I was going to be inducted into this Hall of Fame. The first thing I, I, I did was to look up who some of the other inductees were, and I, I sent a message back saying, "Hey, do you guys, are you sure you mean me? Because like, there's Joni Ivan here and a few other people, uh, who who seem like really impressive." And and they and they said no, uh, uh, yeah, we mean we mean you. So I'd say the only thing I know is from being inducted to the only place. I was like, it puts a lot of pressure on you when you're getting inducted to something in your 30s. I was like, you know, it makes me feel like I ought to now stop doing what I'm doing. But uh, <laughs> but for me, it served as an accelerator in my in my digital journey, as it were. One one more playful question. Um, does a digital hall of fame, do they actually use like a bust or is it more of like a virtual bust? <laughs> That's great. It's very much a virtual bust on a website, which I'm sure if you piss them off, they can take your picture down very fast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we will just all say that we are, uh, we're fervent supporters of the BIMA digital hall of fame. Right. Uh, so want to do nothing uh, to uh, possibly endanger Nigel's status there. Um, and I, I better get off the radio over <laughs> before we get into any more trouble. Right? <laughs> All right, uh, Nigel, I, I really love your uh, response to Jeff's great question. You saw technology as a superpower. And when I think of superpowers, I think of super superpowers aren't neutral. They're either forces of good or forces of evil. <laughs> Do you Absolutely. have... Yeah, can you say a little bit about that? I'm I'm assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, that you see technology as a superpower, as a force for good. I, I think on a personal level, absolutely, and I do, and I think you know most businesses would say that that that's how everybody adopts technology, right? But as you rightly pointed out, intent and execution are two very different things. And what you what you typically almost see in, in every comic book story that I was relating back from my childhood is every villain starts off trying to be the hero and yeah. ends up inadvertently actually, you know, 
causing you know harm and and i feel like one of the biggest things that we uh we've got to kind of understand i think in the world today often people ask me to do predictions in, in conversations right and i feel like while while it's really helpful to have the courage of your convictions i think a huge part today has to be about trying to improve your point of view as opposed to prove your point of view because this this notion that you you know you are a know-it-all you have a strong belief and you you know it all as opposed to you're a learn-it-all somebody who's constantly looking to learn and evolve their perspective and i feel like technology absolutely in most organizations in the way that they describe policies and the way they want to engage with customers starts off being something very good as a force for good but inadvertently without necessarily meaning to can start to actually become creepy. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, a, a few years ago, we were advising a retailer who, who will be nameless, and we built this really interesting, cool data sciences engine for them that gave them predictive capability. Now, mind you, this was, you know, almost a decade ago, so 10 years ago. Today, that this kind of technology is much more common. Back then, though, what it allowed them to do was analyze what different people uh, you know, we're shopping in, in their stores and, and, you know, correlate really interesting patterns. And of course, that technology was super helpful to them because it allowed you to remarket or target people with things that they knew they needed and, you know, start to become more predictive. But then somebody actually started to look at this data and realize that through the data, they could actually start to discern based on women's preferences that they would buy a certain set of products for a while and then eventually uh, start to buy things for a newborn baby. And so they deduced actually that they were actually able to discern whether these women were pregnant. And so they thought, how cool would it be if we could actually start to support them through their pregnancy process and start to offer support and guidance and advice. And in many cases, they started to use this in their communications. And of course, a lot of women started to find out that they were pregnant from their friendly neighborhood retailer, which of course was totally not the intention. It ended, it ended this particular organization in the media uh, and, and it became one of those kind of creepy you know, stories that you, you kind of hear about. But the intent was good. The execution was poor and, and, mm -hmm. and wasn't thought through. And the governance of the organization hadn't evolved to be as sophisticated as the uh, as the process they were going through, so I think it, you know I think you make a, a very good point. I think everybody starts off with the intention. At least most organizations start off with the intention to be good. Thank you, Jeff. All right, I just want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel One Thirty Two. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with my good buddy Ann Greenhall. Our guest today is Nigel Vaz, who is the CEO of Publicis Sapient and author of the book, Digital Business Transformation, How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from Now to Next. Um, <clears throat> Nigel, I think I, I, I'm gonna step back and just sort of broaden our discussion a little bit from uh, superpowers to the, the title of the book and, and thinking about digital business transformation. Um, first of all, for, you know, for our listeners, um, what is it that you, you mean and what is it that is meant by digital business transformation? I think digital business transformation fundamentally in the way I've written the book about it and the work that we do with, with organizations is reimagining your business and then transforming it in the context of a world where people are fundamentally engaging very differently in, in every respect. 
And there's kind of four forces that create the context for this, right? There's the, the force of technology, which is the driver of a lot of change. There's human behavior, which is evolving at an extraordinarily rapid pace. There's societal change, which often, often creates an acceleration. And then there's business models and, and capital that essentially you bring these four forces together and you now have a different operating context than you did as a business. So now actually asking a business to simply incrementally in this world evolve is much harder for them to do because what you tend to do is digitize what you already have. So you start to say, hey, what did we actually do before? Oh, well, we did it like this. There's a checkout line in a, in a retailer or in a bank, there's a teller. So you take that existing process and you put it online. And digitizing basically starts to you know, replicate what you have in a digital context, right? And you often hear people in, 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 in common, you know, industries like banking use the word like, well, I'm going to send you a check. And they mean it like a wire transfer, some electronic version, but it's the same idea, just digital. And what I mean by digital business transformation is how do you really reimagine the business and ask the bigger, more strategic questions? Like, what is the role of a bank? Why would somebody ever go into a bank? Um, why is there a, a conversation happening about opening a bank account in a physical bank when you never open an Apple account uh, or an iTunes account in an Apple store? So what are the relationships between those things? And they then pose much bigger questions for industries, right? Like, do banks ever need to be physical? Yeah. Now, Nigel, when, when we think about these dimensions of change, um, do you view any of them as kind of leading indicators? You know, you, you talked about technology, you talked about human behavior, societal change. I mean, are, do you look for change across the landscape um, or, or do you look in, in a particular place? I think you have to look for change, you know, across the landscape, right? But but if you if you just think about it, Jeff, in 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 this way, I'd say, you know, Warren Buffett made really famous this idea of an economic moat, right? To identify a company's competitive advantage. So the core products, services, brand, economies of scale, efficiency, all those sources of competitive advantage. I think if you now look at most businesses that are successful in a digital world and all you have to do is look at the market cap of the top five companies and you'll see for the most part they are digitally native or are in the business of helping other people become digital uh, by being technology companies themselves and, and what a lot of these businesses have done particularly well is start to do a few things that are really prescient in the context of these changes that you're talking about right the first is being extraordinarily focused on the value pools that they're trying to unlock. So being really clear about what the strategy is and where these value pools are that they're trying to unlock. The second is this idea of, you know, not thinking about the world in terms of projects where things start and they end, but products that constantly evolve. So they're kind of thinking about themselves in constant beta. The next thing they're focused on is experience. So really being tuned into the products, the services, the experiences their employees and their customers have in everything they did. The next is, is um, engineering. So thinking about how do you actually use technology to bring all 
these experiences and, and, and this to life, right? And, and kind of keep that agility going. So this, the principle of kind of software in the context of a business. And then lastly, the D is data and, and AI. So constantly looking at what the data is telling you, starting to validate your hypotheses, thinking about strategy and strategic choices, not in the context of theory, but in the context of what the data is actually telling you and, and kind, kind of iterating, right? And conveniently in my book, I talk about these five things uh, as an acronym, which is SPEED, so S-P-E-E-D, and the SPEED, you know, when you do all of those things, fundamentally is about helping you move faster, make better choices, and pivot when you haven't made the right ones, and, and so when you, when you think about that acronym of SPEED, I feel like going to, you know, back to the question you were asking, is it's a response to all of those changes at the same time, because one might be a, a choice that you're making in the context of your business model. Another might be a choice that you're making in the context of a customer. The third might be a choice that you're making in the context of society or, or your employees. And, and they're all happening at the same time. So this is a kind of way to synthesize those. I want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. Our guest today is Nigel Vaz, who is the author of the best-selling book, Digital Business Transformation, How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from Now to Next. So, Nigel, you've done a lot of consulting, and I'm wondering if most of the time when you're working with companies that need help in this regard, is it because they are simply trying to digitize what they have done before? rather than thinking more, um, you know, in a more innovative way about the possibility. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things, Anne. So if you start with innovation, right, one problem set and archetype that's very common is we innovate, but we do it in this corner of the company. But what we really got to figure out is how to scale that innovation such that it actually makes a difference to this bigger business. That's one kind of archetype. The other archetype is we've got a lot of great ideas, but we don't understand where to start and we don't understand when this ends. And, you know, it's a big shift from a mindset perspective to realize that it doesn't actually end. It's not a destination. It's a journey. And the rate of change and the scale of change are increasing ever greatly more. Right. Lastly, it's this idea of, well, we don't have these capabilities and we need to build them. But more importantly, while we're building these capabilities, we also need to deliver uh, you know, in, in a modern context. So we typically partner with our clients on all of those archetypes, right? Because imagine if you're in a restaurant and somebody's telling you, you've got to rebuild your kitchen. You've got to retrain your chefs. You got to redo the menu. You got to recommunicate what the purpose of your restaurant is all while putting out grade A quality food. So you don't lose one of your Michelin stars, right? It's a, it's a pretty heady ask. And, and, and one of the things I think the the economic environment and the markets have actually done is created a disproportionate advantage for digital companies over established ones. Because as a CEO of a, of a very large uh, telecommunications company said to me, he said, you know, if I could reinvest every dollar that I made, uh, you know, in, in terms of EPS back into my business, I would grow as fast as, you know, a lot of my digital competitors, but I don't have the luxury of that because I'm held to a dividend that I need to pay out and I'm held to a uh, you know, kind of growth in my uh, EPS on a regular basis, right? Versus a lot of our competitors are are able to scale because they're held entirely to growth numbers. I think you look at all right. of these things and, and they create a, a context that needs some outside uh, perspective and support, I guess. Well, Nigel, um, 
all that you've said is very compelling. And I'm wondering if you can give us an example without naming names, maybe of a company that you've worked with and you help that company understand that uh, the possibilities were more than simply digitizing what they had done before. Yeah, I, thanks, Anne. And yeah, absolutely, be very, very happy to, to, to do that. And you know, if you think about uh, an industry that really kind of needs uh, a, a lot of you know shifting, it, it is quite a specialized one. I'll pick, but uh, it, it's trade finance. And you know, for those of you who don't know much about trade finance, it's the process of financing businesses to to create supply and demand across geographies primarily so that you can get goods transported from from one to another uh, location uh, and suppliers need to get funded and, and typically there's a lot of intermediaries and about 600 pieces of paper uh, you know around these uh, another uh, you know example uh, I'll, I'll kind of touch on and, and I'll co compare and contrast is the travel and hospitality industry one that's really affected right now uh, in the context of, of COVID and and the third is the grocery space um, so three different industries three examples and we can you know we can touch base on each one of them so trade finance is uh, an industry that has existed a long time with relationships with trust and with lots of intermediaries providing the connection the challenge that you have is the process the paper the time uh, is incredibly slow so if you're an economy trying to spark growth to stimulate growth especially in times when cross-national uh, trade is hard you need to rethink fundamentally how you do this so we helped launch one of the world's first entirely digital trade finance banks built from the kind of ground up in a digital context and as we were doing that what we started to ask ourselves is not how trade finance works today and how you can digitize everything in order to make it better. What we started to ask ourselves is fundamentally, what are we about? We're about connecting capital to people who need capital to produce goods so that customers who want to pay them for it can get it. And in the context of that, thinking about these three actors and looking at the, the, the premise of why they want to be connected, starting to ask ourselves really basic questions to reimagine fundamentally how these things could get done differently. So for example, could you actually start to match orders coming from a particular market with suppliers pre-finance and allow them to actually get connected in a way that then financed both the supplier and the customer purchase at the same time, you know, and, and it, it's just a, a very different way of thinking about it. Think about the, uh, the idea of, uh, in consumer terms, you know, using another kind of parallel, uh, you know, you're trying to get a mortgage and you go, you look at an apartment, you come back from the apartment, you talk to your family about liking that apartment. And then you go to the bank, you give them all the details about yourself, you give them all the details about your apartment. And then you go uh, try to get the apartment, but somebody else has already paid for it, cash and it's gone. You've got gazelles, mm -hmm. right? So what if you actually said, well, actually, you know, 10 minutes after you walk into an apartment, you like it, all your financial details are pre-populated. You now upload a series of pictures of that apartment and voila, the bank gives you a guarantee right then and there that they will loan you money to buy this and you can make an offer while you're still standing in the apartment. We did something mm -hmm. like this six years ago. So a 10 minute guarantee for a mortgage. 
Now, take something that's 100 times more complicated than getting a mortgage for an apartment like trade finance and try to do the same thing for it, right? That's, you know, kind of real reimagination from my perspective. Another example in the travel and hospitality space is one of our big clients makes a huge amount of its revenues through business travel, which was seriously affected in the context of COVID. So we started to say, well, how could they actually leverage all of the customer data and loyalty that they have to start to build a platform-based business model where they could actually start to offer these people homes and houses to stay and holiday in, taking them into a completely different business area than the one that they were in, adjacent to where they were, but leveraging the brand and trust that they had to start to create a model that now starts to compete with a VRBO or an Airbnb. And in the third instance, uh, you know, uh, the grocery, uh, you know, example is really starting to look at grocery and saying, it's great because for the longest time, the model was about getting the people to the food. But mm -hmm. what if we could actually start to get the food to the people and lose this distinction of the physical and the digital, but combine the two? So who cares whether you're somebody who's 70 years old and people said you could never ever buy things online because you were not the typical audience and you still like to go into the grocery store to browse and, and look and feel and touch stuff, but then you order it on your mobile device and have it delivered home. So what are you, what does that make you? A, a digital customer or physical customer? It doesn't matter. You're just a customer and you're able to do whatever you want in, in ways that you want. And then just to kind of put a fine point on that question you asked, we're using the same technology that you use digitally, where you look at a website and say, where are people clicking? How are they browsing? Where, you know, you know, all the analytics that you do and mm -hmm. starting to connect all that analytics to the physical uh, store. So which aisles do people stand in longer? Guess what? You know, <laughs> when it's summer, they stand in the freezer aisles longer. <laughs> and when it's winter, they stand as far away from the freezer aisles, people also tend to look uh, at the corner uh, of an aisle and, and just move through the middle. And you start to understand the same kind of traffic patterns of a physical space in the same way that you understand the digital space. And you can start to merchandise and, and monetize that very differently. Also helps with social distancing if you actually could understand how people move through a space. Um, much, much easier to put digital signposts around a store um, as opposed to physical stickers so, so they can change. So it's dynamic. So you're projecting things onto spaces and floors. And then as you see the traffic patterns move, because people in the day buy different to people in the evening, you rotate all those signs. That's great. Nigel, thank you. And I know Jeff wants to get a question in here. <laughs> Jeff. I, I, I feel a little bit, Nigel, as um, someone who's worked now in the university, the higher education space for almost 20 years. Uh, I feel a little bit like the grocery store owner who is realizing that the set of assumptions that you know he or she had about, uh, about the customers uh, have been turned upside down somewhat uh, during this pandemic. And, and so I, I wonder if you'd be willing to give me a little bit of live advice here. Um, what questions should universities be asking themselves about, you know, changes in technology, changes in, in student behavior and, and changes in society that, um, that could inform what the next wave of education looks like? You know, I think Jeff, it's a fantastic question. And I'll start with the, one of those changes that you, uh, you and Anne started with very early, right? When we were just getting the, the, the conversation going amongst yourselves with 
what is possible to be created in the context of an experience and intimacy across people <laughs> with screens between them? You know, today we're sitting on Zoom in front of computers, but tomorrow we'll be sitting in holographic environments where you can potentially sense and touch in, in three dimensions beyond pictures, right? And, you know, you, you were projecting five years from now, and, and maybe that's five years from now, maybe that's, you know, 10 years from now, but certainly that's the direction of travel. And if you say that's the direction of travel, then the next thing you've got to ask yourself is as people's behavior starts to get comfortable with doing things like medical diagnosis over video, um, you know, falling in love over video. There's a lot of people I know you were talking about intimacy in the context of connection, but also intimacy in the context of relationships. So many people have been separated by people they love um, or, or have fallen in love with these uh, people in entirely virtual contexts. As those kinds of things start to happen, right? You've got behavior, now you've got technology. Um, the next thing is the, 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 the societal pressure. Cost of higher education seems to be increasing at an ever-increasing pace and putting it out of reach of so many people who want to, to kind of benefit from it, but perhaps can't. And then lastly, the business models. So what if you could actually reduce the cost of providing the same high-quality higher education that you do today, but in this more platform-oriented world, start to scale that to many more people, making it affordable to that many more people, right? And I feel like there's going to be some trade-offs and there's going to be some shifts in the way that you monetize and create value. But I also think the idea that um, it is the way it is today and we have to protect it at this price point that's kind of crazy high but accessible to only a few people um, is going to start to have, you know, it is going to need to change because I don't think it's a sustainable business model. I think the whole idea of, you know, societal inclusivity that's becoming more and more the norm is going to put a lot of pressure on the system to say it's just not good enough that, the, the, you know, the kids of a few wealthy people in a few wealthy countries are the ones that are benefiting from uh, all the wonderful knowledge that people like you and Anne and others impart, and many other people can't benefit from that. Let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and Anne Greenhall and I are talking today with Nigel Vaz. He's the CEO of Publicist Sapient, uh, and we're talking about his book, the best-selling Digital Business Transformation, How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from Now to Next. Now, Nigel, this is a, it's a leadership show, and yes. at the... You know, at some point in every interview, we, we have to ask what this means for the organization. And, yeah. and I love the metaphor you use in your book of, of the Griffin organization, the, the half lion, half eagle um, that, that reigns supreme. Um, tell us what kind of organization is best suited to implement uh, and execute the kind of transformation you've been describing. You know, I, th I think, Jeff, that's when, when you think about the Griffin organization and the reason I kind of use that, that metaphor, it goes back to the conversation we were having really early on. I think one of the biggest things that organizations find, you know, most organizations find hard to change, right, is, is actually the everyday things, the everyday choices, the everyday ideas that they try and push forward. So what the Griffin organization was talking about is if we can actually shift this idea uh, of the organization that says just because we've done things that have made us successful for the last 20 or 30 years, 
they're mm -hmm. gonna make us successful for the next 20 or 30 years uh, and get them to start to question everything uh, you know, around them and, and start to develop this kind of intellectual curiosity around the notion of what if we don't have all the answers? What if the things that we actually um, have taken as gospel in terms of our strategy are, are actually just theories and they're being invalidated by the data we're seeing? So to give you just an example of, you know, something as simple as, you know, where to play, right? A typical question, you know, uh, that many companies ask themselves about new markets, right? It's not a question of markets and customer segments, but it's about, all the other choices that might allow you to determine the kind of value you aim to produce. Uh, another example, the, the how to win. So what is it actually gonna take to, to, to kind of win? And being really thoughtful about the choices of whether you're trying to defend in this space, you're trying to differentiate in the space, or you're trying to disrupt in the space and working back from those ideas to specific choices uh, that you're making. And ultimately, all of these things come down to um, come down to leadership, as, as, as you were saying, right? So being very, very clear on on uh, the people who have to make this. I think somebody said digital transformation uh, would be much easier if you took the people out of the equation, because the, the people that find, you know, it's the people that are behind the technology, the people that are behind the business models, the people that are the customers that have to actually make the shift. And I think we all, the, the reason the Griffin uh, idea kind of, you know, sort of stuck for me is, you know, if you think about life, almost everything linear is good, right? Babies are born linear fashion, trees grow in a linear fashion, anything in life that is bad is exponential. So tumors and viruses and you know everything that grows extraordinarily fast. And, and most organizations are really struggling with both the rate of change and the pace of change, and then figuring out how to make these choices in the context of, uh, of that. So most leaders who, who are successful and most organizations who are successful get to grips with the fact that this rate of change and the pace of change isn't going to slow down. So what you've got to start to figure out is how to actually make the choices in the context of that environment. And when you make the wrong choices, you know, pivot quickly. So this idea of actually, you know, rather than making every decision in a fully considered, fully baked way, start to test hypotheses, put a few trial balloons out, see what's working. And if, it, if, if one is, you pivot in that direction. If another isn't, you, you kill it. Now, let me let me ask you one one kind of follow up question there, and then I'm going to um, hand the baton back to Anne for a little bit. Um, you know, in, in the book, and, and especially as you're describing the the Griffin organization here, um, you, you cite Jeff Bezos and Amazon as an example of the the kind of organization that is not afraid to fail, and that in fact actually encourages the scaling of failure. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? I was really, um, I was really caught by that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about something like Amazon, right? I think what Amazon actually does extraordinarily well is those speed capabilities are part of its DNA, you know, that I talked about earlier in the conversation. So when, when you have a kind of foundation that's very strong at that speed level, what it means is they can start to say, hey, we've got this huge cloud infrastructure and architecture to support our retail business. What if we actually externalized that and started to offer it to other people uh, so that they can use it who are not competitors of ours? Or 
what if we could actually take our delivery network of vans that are delivering parcels all over and start to actually use that as a service to offer an alternative to FedEx or, uh, or um, UPS? And then, you know, what if we actually use all the knowledge of the fact that we have a Kindle and it's a book device and it's great and successful to perhaps foray into a mobile phone? And what they do is they do those things very quickly. And when it's not working, they're quite happy to kill it. So the fire, the device that happened, mm -hmm. you know, didn't work and it's gone. But from the fire came now the Amazon Echo and Amazon Alexa products, right? Which actually, you know, were a small element of that device that they figured out how to scale. Because you know the the uh, the original genesis of that wasn't originally to come up with a um, a, a voice navigational uh, you know sort of uh, infrastructure that connects you to intelligence. The idea was to use voice navigation in a much more typical context of a device. And then you say, well, actually, that device didn't work, fire. So we're going to pivot somewhere else. And and what I like about uh, that approach, I think, which most traditional businesses take a long time to do. So, you know, it's a very determined idea. They take a long time to plan it. They take a long time to execute it. And when it is obvious that it's not working, they continue to back it to a point where uh, perhaps they, you know, they, they could have made a much, you know, a much different choice. But the reason I come back to those speed capabilities is that's the infrastructure that allows them to make those decisions because they're looking at the data constantly. They're thinking about experiences and engineering. So they're basically decomposing that device and saying, what can we take out of this that's good and let's bend the rest because it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. That one element is going to be useful for us. All right, Nigel, let me get a quick question in here because I know time is short. And now this is a this is a tough question. Have you used any of your learnings on your own organization, Publicis Sapient? Um, and absolutely, we have. And 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 there's many many aspects of uh, of it. I'll I'll talk about. But let me just start with uh, you know one very obvious uh, one, which is very simply thinking about the role that experiences have in the context of our organization and what, what it means to create those experiences in a way uh, that benefit us. And, and you know, one of the reasons I feel like we did okay through the pandemic was this idea we talk about our, our clients' experiences and the products and services they create. And, and we started to look at our own organization and saying, what are the human experiences? We're fundamentally a people business and an IT business. What are the people experiences we can create for our people that allow them to create experiences for our clients? And in turn, you know, when we got hit by, by the pandemic, we were up and running with 20 plus thousand people in you know, so many countries around the world in a matter of days being able to deliver for our clients and not to say that we didn't have some challenges you know and you know and of course like everybody else but we were able to ramp up very quickly to a level where we were seeing almost no impact to productivity mm -hmm. largely because i feel like we've done the groundwork on the experiences for our people and mm -hmm. enabling them to kind of perform and, and, and you know I, I feel like we're constantly learning from our clients in a real-time basis another uh, you know, example I'd say is we typically, when we work with clients, work in a, in a mode I call player coach. 
So we are <laughs> delivering work for our clients as players on the field with their teams in a co-creative environment, while we are actually also coaching them to build capability. It's something that we've seen, you know, extraordinarily successfully work within our own organization as we try to scale new capabilities or, or, or new ideas, uh, you know, in, in, into, uh, into our own organization in order to be able to deliver uh, for our clients. So I feel like um, many, many times, but it's, but I also feel like we suffer from the cobbler shoe syndrome, you know, you're so often, uh, you know, trying to solve big and complex problems for others that if, you know, many of our, our team were listening to me on this show, they'd say, but you know, our expense report application could be so much better than it is right now and I would totally you know say that is true and uh you know it's 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 on the backlog that we have to kind of get to or you know uh, some some other you know part of our organization but I feel like we we definitely are in that mindset of asking ourselves the same question Jeff put to me which is what is the future of our business what does Mm -hmm. work we do look like five years from now or 10 years from now how does our business evolve uh, you know, in a world where companies perhaps are, are going to be in digital 4.0 or 5.0 on that on that kind of digital journey. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Nigel. Jeff. Well, let me um, let me see if I can get one more question in here, um, Nigel. As you know, we, we've talked a lot about what digital transformation need, means for companies, um, what it means for universities. Um, what, what I'd like to uh, maybe pick your brain a little bit about is what do you think this means for employees and what, what changes, especially when you look at the last two factors that, that we've cited here often, the societal changes and business model changes, what changes do you think uh, are, are underway right now in terms of you know, both the skills required to participate in the digital economy and the kinds of career paths that uh, an individual should expect? You know, Jeff, I, I think this is a, a topic that's a huge passion point for me, first, because of our business, and second, um, I'm also part of the World Economic Forum Digital Leadership Executive, which is a group that thinks about big digital issues. And in fact, I'm actually participating virtually in a conference uh, uh, happening in, in Japan in physical sense, but it's, of course, global thanks to, to COVID. And, and um, you know, the World Economic Forum has estimated about 133 million new technology roles would have been generated globally between 2018 and 2022, but 54% of all employees will require significant reskilling and upskilling. Meanwhile, you know, a shortage of workers in the technology industry alone is about 4.3 million as it stands currently. So you look at this really stark supply and demand situation that we've actually got, right? And it goes right to the heart of what my book is about, what I think organizations are trying to grapple with. It was we've got to change at an extraordinarily rapid pace, but at the same time, we've got to fundamentally, uh, you know, build this new capability way faster than it seems to be available to us. And, and I'd say the, the, the biggest unlock for me starts, frankly, in your world, which is how are we creating uh, people to move from this 
you know, kind of, I guess, industrial age paradigm from my perspective, where you study for the first third of your life, you work for the next third of your life. And depending on how well you do the first two things, you retire for the last third of your life, you know, which was this very typical construct that most people kind of grew up with. You know, I study for a while, then I work, and then I, and, and I have an 11 year old son, and I'm constantly in conversation with him where I feel like, they're going to need, he's going to need by the time he's in the workforce to go through the equivalent of a four-year undergrad degree every four years, because pretty much everything that is being taught to him in the first four will be obsolete by the time he gets to the next four and so on and so forth. So how do you create this constant culture of learning, unlearning, and relearning? And what is the role that universities play in that? What is the role that companies play in that? And, and what is the role that society plays in that? You know, where we become a learning society. And, and it's, a, it's a constant dynamic and a partnership between, you know, institutions like, you know, yours of higher education and learning, institutions like ours, which are constantly in need of people, uh, and institutions like our clients who are also constantly in need of people who need different skills than the ones they have today and might need even more different skills a, a few years from now. And I feel like unless we change that entire system, which also ties back to that previous question you asked about how we can scale education. Yeah. Well, Nigel, um, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, you just said one of the, the, we'll have to have you back because I, I could spend a whole nother hour on um, all the things we need to unlearn um, while we're in the process of learning here. Uh, but for now, I, I, I just want to, you know, on behalf of Anne and I um, say thank you for, for joining the show. Um, and can you let our listeners know how to find out more about both your, your company as well as the book? Sure thing, Jeff. Our company is called Publicist Sapient and, and, and we're publicistsapient.com and the book is on Amazon, Kindle, Apple, and uh, of course, I'm sure available at your neighborhood bookstore. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to everybody by reading it. And I'm Nigel Vaz at nigelvaz.com if you're interested in, in looking me up too. All right. Well, thanks again, Nigel. The new book is Digital Business Transformation, How Established Companies Sustain Competitive Advantage from Now to Next. We want to thank all of you for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. Once again, a special thank you to our guest, Nigel Vaz. I'd also like to thank my good buddy, Ann Greenhall, for hanging out with me on another Friday, uh, our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.